Scott Hanson. Canvas, art and ideas on FBI Radio. Good Sunday morning to you. It's 11am, which means it's time for Canvas. I'm your fave art host, Sibella D'Souza. Um... And I'm alone today in the office, which is a bit sad. Um, David is away, but don't fear, because I've got an amazing lineup of guests to fill the hour. Up first is painter Gemma Smith talking about her... Oh, I've got some music still playing in the background. I'm just going to pause that for you guys. Um, up first, we have Gemma Smith talking about her milestone exhibition, Rhythm Sequence, at my old favourite stomping ground, UNSW Galleries. Then we head over to the Art Gallery of New South Wales to talk about The National with Sydney um, curator Isabel Parker-Phillip and photography artist Isabella Pluto. Um, and to wrap it all up, our music producer, Laura Hunt, has an incredible interview with the legendary Jan Terry, um, who's been curating all of our amazing tracks th- for the last three weeks. Um, but before that, I wanted to read a little bit of an expert from this amazing article that was released this um, week by Running Dog Magazine. Um, uh, it, sorry, um, it was released by Running Dog Magazine by Eugene Yu Nam Chung, um, and it's the, called The Canonization of Quilty. Oh, my alarm is going off, which is great. Anyway... Um, for those of you who might not know, Ben Quilty is the darling of the Sydney of the Australian art scene, who was recently featured in last week's Good Weekend as an object of heaven, decked out with thorns, very Jesus-esque. Um, the tagline suggested that um, Australian art was desperate for the representation a straight, white, cis man embodied. Um, this angered a lot of artists and a lot of young people I know working in the arts. You know, we're out here literally starving for role models and opportunities um, for ways to be seen and move in spaces that are historically built to keep us out. Anyway, this article was born out of that frustration that many of us hold. And Eugene writes, and I really personally really love this article, um, but Eugene wrote, Viewed as a whole, Quilty's voice cannot be distinguished from the next white man who is already overrepresented in the public life and debate. Meaningful change and salvation for those who have been denied a voice cannot happen when it is someone like Ben Quilty who chairs the forum. Um, that's just an excerpt from the article, but check out more of the article via Canvas's Facebook page. We posted it earlier this week or via runningdog.art. If you get the chance, text in your say on the Ben Quilty debate at 0409 I'll be reading out your opinions and texts on air throughout the show. So please keep me company because I don't have David with me to banter back with me. So banter with me. Um, let's go to our first track. Um, this is from Jan Terry and this is this is Friends and Jan Terry is a very good friend of the show. the show we just heard from the one and only Jan Terry this is her final um, final 
week of music curation for Canvas. We'll be airing an interview, I think, um, just after this interview in the show. So stay tuned. Right now we're in the studio with Gemma Smith, a busy painter. Gemma was born in Sydney and has lived and worked from Brisbane and Pittsburgh in the United States. She currently lives and works in Sydney, working from a local studio in Marrickville. Thanks for coming on the show, Gemma. Thanks, Sabella. Thanks for being here. Um, you've travelled quite extensively, um, uprooting your practice, you know, across you know parts of Australia and then also to the United States. Mm-hmm. How has this influenced your painting? Well, I guess um, it, it's very different to work in Sydney. Um, I grew up here. I went to art school here. And so I kind of like had my f- period of formation as an artist here in a way. Um, I showed at artist-run spaces a lot around Sydney after I graduated and during um, college. And then um, in Brisbane, I kind of nurtured my practice um, into like a full-time studio artist which was which was really lovely and um, and then set up some like really um, really nice sort of studio practice in a way like I basically got to have 12-hour studio days in a really supportive community around um, and then took that um, over to the states but um, in terms of the actual work I would say that the light was really different in all of those places so it really had quite an influence on the color that I used um, and how I used that yeah and um with the how are the art communities kind of based from one area to another well brisbane's just a lot smaller than sydney so um it's a really like very um tight community and quite um supportive but also a really strong small community so people like um i i show with the gallery up there milani gallery and the artists around that like sandra selig and vernonaki and richard bell etc etc um eugene carcesio and then other painter painters i had really ended up having really good sort of solidarity with like Julie Fragger um and and so that was a really formative time for my practice as well um in in a similar way to being at art school and working um closely with um you know my uh, peers at art school were Koji Ryui and um Hossein Sami and I still have like a quite a close um relationship with those guys um, and then Pittsburgh w- was felt very sort of flying quite solo because it took me a long time to establish a network and um, it's also fairly small, about the same size as Brisbane. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've, this is a massive exhibition. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, it's been called a bit of a milestone in your career. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and Jose De Silva is one of the, is the curator for mm-hmm. it. I guess, how did you guys, did you, was for choosing all of these different ex- mm. um, paintings because mm-hmm. this is about a 16 kind of retrospective of your practice, 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you go about picking the paintings or was there a process for it? Well, firstly, I just want to say that it was, it's such a kind of privilege to have this show, this kind of show at this stage in my career. Um, it's like looking back over that many years and then bringing all of these works from private collections and um, and public sort of collections like art galleries and university art galleries together and having them all together has just been it's been really lovely a lovely process but um, in terms of making the checklist for the show Jose um, and I worked on that um, together and so there's you know there's obviously like an ideal checklist about which works you would love and so we looked at um, at having we looked at using works um, I guess we wanted to have a cross-section of the entire kind of um, 16 years or 15 years and um, and sort of show examples from different bodies of work yeah Um, 
And you've gained yourself, or you've garnered yourself for the last couple of years, the title of mid-career artist, <laughs> which is, as David um, Capra, if he was here on the show, would probably say it's a really strange um, space to be in because, you know, for a really long time, artists kind of work towards being, you know, emerging, 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 and then you get mm. mid-career and it's kind of this strange plateau. Um, how <laughs> have you right. been finding it? Well, it seems, yeah, it's been going for a while. Um, it feels like just a very a technical sort of, um, you know, pigeonhole in a way. Um but yeah, it's it's kind of an an endless stretch, isn't it? The mid career artist, like it never ends. <laughs> I, I think, think so. we were, I think we were comparing it to a plane taking off That's and then plateauing in <laughs> at <air>. altitude. That's <laughs> yeah, right. you know, there's not as much turbulence, but it's still terrifying because you're very. There's a long way to fall. That's right. And then we worked out that was a terrible analogy because what happens after that? <laughs> is you you land safely <laughs> and right. securely as an established artist. <laughs> Um, well, with that in mind, uh, we're going to go straight to our next track by Jan Terry. This is We Love You, feat um, Punk Bunny and Jan Terry. You're listening to Campus on FBI Radio 94.5. We'll be your digital stream. Nothing but love in this world. We love, 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 love. Yes, I love you tremendously. Hello. Sorry, I just couldn't find the button there. But we just heard a collaboration between LA-based musician Punk Bunny and our music curator Jan Terry with their song, We Love You. And oh, we love you too, Jan. Um, We're in studio right now with Gemma Smith talking about her retrospective exhibition, Rhythm Sequence. Um, Gemma, you were once a student at the Sydney College of the Arts, also known as SCA. Um, What was your art like then? Like, has it changed heaps? Does it make you cringe? (laughs) (laughs) So I was kind of working in a more minimalist way. I wasn't working with colour at all. I did these paintings that were made from textures. um, And so they were sort of texture lines. And the number of canvases was sort of dictated by um, the length, the like the length of the texter's life. So when the texter died, that would be the end of the work. And ah, so I um, love so this. <laughs> quite, quite different, really. Yeah, completely yeah. different kind of. In na- a way, but it sort of still f- um, is like a relates in the sense that it's kind of playing out of an idea, which I do a lot with my paintings as well. Yeah, um, and how do you feel about the loss of, you know, the physical space of Sydney College of the Arts? I just I think it's really such a tragedy. Yeah. I, re- I loved um, my time at college. I had great teachers, Matthias Gerber and Maria Cruz and Sue Baker, and um, and really good peers. So many of the artists that I know um, working in Sydney uh, and Australia today have come graduated from SCA, and um, you know the loss of that sort of a place just means you know a lot for an art community. Um, mm. Yes, even quite a few of my um, the artists that also show at Sarah Cordia Gallery, where I show, came through Sydney College. And do you find that because you know we're losing this physical space, you're mm. currently beginning a teaching role at the National Art School? Yes, um, very close to UNSW Art and Design. Yes. So it's um, it, do you find that you're putting a lot of energy into teaching in other spaces? Well, I think. Uh, it's made this starting like last week literally yeah. has made it's me um, re- <laughs> reflect on my time at art school actually and and how important it was and just the conundrum of a you know a degree to teach um, conceptual underpinning of painting or art and as well as the technical side of things um, and uh, reflecting also on like the role that TAFEs had in that process where when I started at Sydney College I think it was something like 
uh, 25% of students were school leavers and the rest had kind of done some other training, usually technical training before coming to art school. So it had this, um, there was an ability to kind of not go through all of the technical training, um, but look more at the conceptual side of things. Yeah. And I think that technical training is like really, really invaluable coming into that space because there are lots of TAFE cuts at the mm. moment. And I think mm. that, that we're really seeing that effect and impact on art schools. Mm. I, for one, know I'm, you know, a recent graduate from COFA yeah. or UNICEF, you aren't designed <laughs> for those listening. Um, and something that was really always talked about in my cohort was the need for practical skills and wanting to have more practical mm. skills and we had an amazing rigorous research kind of conceptual based study and practice from um COFA but what we really also needed was those technical skills and with the cutting of TAFE and mm. and and more technically based universities we're losing that skill and also there's time pressure and for students these days, and space pressure. Yes. So, um, so even if you could find the time, you might not have the studio. If you have the studio, it's hard to find the time. So all of those things are um, adding pressure, I think, to yeah. students. And NAS just got that, luckily, that 45-year lease on the area. How wonderful. I know, so good. <laughs> and then you look at uh, COFA, which has just gone to trimesters. And so we've mm. gone, we've been cut down from about 15 weeks of study to 10 weeks. Oh, uh, wow. As a trimester now. Really? Not a semester, yeah. Right. Um, and we've gone from three-hour classes to four-hour classes to make contact hours longer. But then mm. you've got teachers kind of grappling with this, having to keep kids' attention for about four hours, <laughs> which is very difficult if you've ever been in an art class. <laughs> and they're like, do I talk for two hours? I can't talk for two hours. That's too long. I'll have to talk for one hour and then have breaks in between. Well, you know, most of our, well, a lot of our, you know, um, best work was done over coffee at art school or at mm, the pub. Yes, um, definitely. <laughs> I can attest to that. That has not changed. <laughs> well, you're really building your cohort and you're building, as you were saying, you know, um, the people that you uh, study with often become your peers later mm. down the track and you all see each other in different kind of trajectories. And that's really important, that fostering yep. of that community and having a space for that community to exist. Totally. Mm. Um, I also wanted to ask you about, you said that you listened to podcasts at 1.5 oh. the speed or something along those lines. I think it's like, yeah, one and a half times yeah. um, the speed. No, I think that's when I definitely do that and it possibly could be in reaction to like the very very slow processes of making a painting most amount of information in so my like brain. sometimes you know I have to because I work in a way that um, I have to try something out and I have to like um, actually play that idea out completely across the canvas and then it may or may not work and then you know it's it could be an incredibly slow incremental process um and so maybe I just get like this sort of desperate um <laughs> desire for like information or needing to speed things up a little bit and what are you impatient. currently listening to that you're obsessed with <laughs> well I or found this well I found this one last week a few weeks ago which is called everything is alive and it's like this podcast where inanimate objects are given a um, given a voice, so like bath towel, subway seat, <laughs> <laughs> um, co uh, like a can of soft drink, and then they they sort of it's an interview format with the with the object, and it's very funny, very good. Well, in kind of maybe in a tangent to that, <laughs> what's one thing that you'd want audiences to keep in mind before coming to Rhythm Sequence, or what do you want your paintings to say to your audience? Hmm. Well, 
That's a tough one. I know. I think just, you know, it's just they're quite experiential. So just look. <laughs> yeah, just just look. <laughs> I think that's good. I think that's, way, I think that's what everyone should do when they go to an exhibition yeah. is just look. Please look. <laughs> um, I love that so much. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Gemma. <laughs> no um, problem. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Um, that was Gemma Smith talking about her survey exhibition at UNSW Gallery's Rhythm Sequence. Um sorry, opening this Friday, the 15th of March at 6pm, running until the 1st of June. We're going straight into an interview with Jan Terry, our guest music curator, and Laura Hunt. So we'll hear from more of us after that. Jan Terry is a singer-songwriter who rose to fame for a new generation after a long hiatus with music. This happened after her video for song Losing You was uploaded to YouTube. She has a fearless and sweet demeanour, which explains why some call her a PG-rated punk. I had the privilege of talking to her long distance from her home in California about her escapades with Marilyn Manson in the 90s, YouTube stardom, and her plans for the future. Hello? Hello! Hey guys, how you coming? How you doing? You you in Australia. You do, good day, mate. You're down on it. What's the Matilda? I think we were. Uh, my music is like mixed in with a lot of different people and also simple simple writing and the chorus is very hooky. Um, like the Beatles, I love you, or I want to hold your hand, and they say it over and over again. That's what some of my songs, they have that hook to it. Are you writing from personal experience, your lyrics? Mm, sometimes. Sometimes, I don't know, it just comes in my head and then I, I, I just went with it. So I don't know, maybe watch something on TV, read something in the newspaper, and then I go with it. I went to Columbia College and I have a BA, so I'm, that stands for me being a, a badass. And I also, um, back when I went to school, a BA stands for you qualified to work at McDonald's. But, well, after I graduated from college and try getting a, uh, getting a job like normal people do. I worked in Montgomery Ward as an assistant manager for the men's department. And then in between time, I was trying to do my music. And that's what I did. And then I eventually started to drive a limo and did that for 14 years. Did you enjoy it? I know I read somewhere that you used to hand out your VHS videos in the limousines. Well... Back then, back then the videos were VHS and um, and they were on cassettes and the albums and a few CDs. So yeah, I I got to sing at the governor Tommy Thompson's um, party that he had up in Madison. He um, he was one of my clients that I used to drive in Chicago, and you know I was just. Trying to get everything out, and my my videos winded it up on MTV, Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> that TV show, those little characters go. Eh, 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 eh.
always wanted to do music, and it's very hard to get with a record company. And, and so I was starting out as a songwriter and trying to sell my songs like they do to, to have the big people and the publishing company do it. But instead, um, I had my lawyer friend start my company, and we got a copyright and, and protected in Washington, D.C., and I just did outside sources, used, um, used a studio, did my own songs, and and just did it that way, you know. That was before the Internet. So how did you hook up with Marilyn Manson? Okay, my friend Jim Thompson, Miguel, and them worked for Tower Records. And Manson was on a book signing tour. And Jim and I think Jim is the one that talked to Manson. And he put together a little press kit for me. And he gave it to the limo. And, and it had my videos and it had my two albums in for it. And right around um, Wells McCarvin's birthday, uh, his manager people called my house, and I wasn't home. So when I came home, they wanted to fly me out and sing for her birthday. And I I had no idea who she was or who he was. So <laughs> I went out and did it. And then I opened up for Manson when he came out in October. He's a, he's a, very, he's a very nice man, and he's very intelligent, and he's and he puts on his own makeup. So I used to talk to him in the dressing room. Well, my name is Jan Terry, and I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm doing a... I'm a friend of Marilyn Manson. <laughs> what happened with the transition between handing out your VHS videos and then becoming actual YouTube sensation? Well, somebody put it up on YouTube, and... And they put it under worst music video, and it got over four million hits. So, and according to the internet, internet never lies. According to them, in 2002, I'm dead. According to the internet, you're talking to a dead person. <laughs> I'm dead. According to internet, and we can't find the obituaries that were up on the internet. So, why did people think that you had died? I don't know. They said I had five husbands and I died of cancer, and oh that was it. No, my um, I was in a car accident and my my parents were sick and I had to take care of them. So I kind of like wasn't really doing too much in the music industry. So I mean I was around, but I really didn't do that much. And now I'm just waiting for my my friend um, back in Chicago. He's I wrote the stories, but he's writing it down for me. He's doing my autobiography for me, and he's um, finishing another documentary. There's three documentaries. One is one is out. The other one, they never released it. And the third one, Darren and Darren and Fred are doing for me. So I'm hoping he gets done that book this year and the documentary this year because JoJo and I want to go book signing tour and we of course we want to go to down uh, under and and like i said i want a box of kangaroo and see see corral beers i love corral beers 
are you playing shows at the moment? No, I'm not. I'm um, the music's all we recorded. I'm waiting to go back into studio to just lay down my vocals. There'll be five new songs coming out. I my music is to make people feel good. When I put on a show, I want I want them to forget about the problems, forget about everything else in the world. You come in to see a show and have a good time. Music producer Laura Hunt in conversation with our music 
our guest music selector, the infamous California-based YouTube star, Jan Terry. That track at the end of that was Journey to Mars. I'm Sab D'Souza, your host. Um, anyway, on to our next interview. I'm joined right now by Isabel Parker-Philip and Isabella, um, um, sorry, Pluta, (laughs) curator and artist for the National um, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Isabella Parker-Philip is a curator of photography at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Her curatorial practices um, address the complexities and elasticity of the medium and her work is written in an interdisciplinary focus. Um, While Isabella is a Polish born Australian artist who embraces photography as a way of interpreting and reconceptualizing the role of the image in our lives. Isabella, as an artist, <laughs> there's also a lot of Bellas in yes. the <laughs> we have a Sibella, I, I purposely left off Sibella and just wrote, said Sab because I was like, it's going to get very confusing. <laughs> so apologies to listeners. Um, but Isabella, um, as an artist, what was your first memory of photography in your life? Uh, I my my father um, was quite a uh, prolific photographer, or a, um, I guess an, an amateur photographer, and and he sort of um, I guess he he sort of recalls times in you know in the seventies when he was at university and he studied engineering in uh, in Warsaw that he would always be the he was the he was the photographer for the local press for the rag for the university rag. So I sort of I remember him sort of talking about these kinds of. Um, moments or his sort of passion for it and I guess I think back to that I sort of I never really realized we had that kind of in common until Mm. I ended up you know halfway through art school sort of embracing photography as the primary mode of thinking and making um yeah so it was dad's kind of picture taking but it was also the copious amounts of photographs that we stored in our uh in our sort of um, entertainment unit or the credenza as I've referred to in the past we sort of had drawers and drawers of photographs he'd take and, um, and keep and we still have them which is quite nice to have and uh, to refer to because I think that's something that we lose now that kind of physical um, um, the shuffling of pictures and family albums so yeah so it's quite special to still have that and how has photography's role changed in your life from then till now I guess I guess I have become maybe more curious, less patient, maybe more, mm-hmm. um, I interrogate it more, I overthink it perhaps. I think overthinking is probably the right term. Mm-hmm. Um, I set myself um, uh, mad sometimes. So I I guess I I, I use photography in, in a number of different ways. I guess I don't feel like I have a singular uh, way of approaching it or a singular subject as Isabel and I were just chatting outside about. Uh, and it's it sort of grows and it keeps on growing like you know I I often sort of um you know I read things or I I go to sort of talks and exhibitions and I'm always just um not surprised but sort of um open and just realize how much I still don't know so I kind of love that, that it's constantly changing because the medium is constantly changing um for us as as artists and as sort of individuals in the world Isabel, you're, photog- you're the photography curator for the Art Gallery of New mm-hmm. South Wales and you're curating part of the National this year. Yes. Um, is there a particular photograph or cultural moment that has influenced your curatorial pr- practice? <laughs> or is there something that stayed with you? Yeah, I mean, um, so much feeds into, as I'm sure, you know, is exactly the same with Isabella, so much uh, infiltrates and infects your thinking, um, some of which you can never really extricate or, or identify um, and it's it's 
you know, my relationship to photography is is long-standing, but also, you know, has lots of different twists and turns. Um, and a lot of photographs have stayed with me for a really long time. Some of them are made by artists that, that exist within the collection that I look after at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Um, but some are just family snaps that are in albums that have kind of stayed at the back of my head um, for a really long time. There's a photograph of my mum underwater. I don't know when she was like 20 or something. Um, and it's taken on the top of the water and it's completely obscured and her body looks totally distorted. Mm. Um, and it's just a blur of, of skin and a swimsuit, um, which has always stayed in the back of my head as a kind of... Um, almost as like a mascot or, or a way to remind myself that, that the photographic medium is is totally slippery and opens it, itself out to multiple ways of reading an image. You know, we often think about a photograph as being a way of seamlessly and straightforwardly recording the world around us. But a lot of photographs don't tell straightforward truths. They don't tell facts. They don't reflect the world back in the same way that we necessarily see it. And I think that's it's always good to remind yourself that a photograph can be playful, it can be slippery, it can be about um, leading you to kind of metaphoric conclusions or allegorical associations. Um, it can be hard to to read or be illegible and I think that's that's influenced a lot of my curatorial thinking in, in the sense that a lot of the work that I do um, is based around, um, well as I've kind of been able to decode over the years and, and maybe diagnose my own curatorial impulses is often um, based around uh, a kind of metaphoric engagement with what I'm, I'm working with. Um, and by that I mean, um, you know, when, when you think about how you put works in, in an exhibition, how you, how you curate a show, you're often placing two artworks next to one another that may be completely different, maybe saying completely different things. But when you place them next to one another, they tell a new story. And in the same way that when you make a metaphor in language, you place two very different images or objects in close proximity to one another to say something else. So it's a kind of, um, that's, that's the way I think of my curatorial practice. So often my shows have... Um, kind of metaphoric narratives at the base of them um, and I think that comes from you know lots of different sources whether it's literature film you know other images that have that have stayed with me yeah that's amazing um, on that note let's quickly go to our next track um, Jan Terry this is time and I think it's very fitting giving photography <laughs> and giving the time and space that it needs to be seen I'm really good at segues photography is all about time yeah. <laughs> you're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 stay with us we'll be right back just heard uh, a track titled Time from our music curator Jan Terry, released on her album Baby Blues back in 1993. We're in the studio right now, being treated to a sneak peek about the National at the Art Gallery of New South Wales from curator Isabel Parker-Phillip and artist Isabella Pluta. I'm Sabella D'Souza, and there's a lot of bells in the studio right now, a joke I've made before, I'm sorry. Um, Isabella, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the work that you're showing in the National this year. Uh, it's been a long journey. 
uh, literally, metaphorically, in, in, in various ways. When I, uh, when Isabel first, um, when we first met to sort of discuss what I was sort of making as a, um, you know, was, was, was uh, over a, around a year ago, and I'd just returned um, uh, a few weeks prior to that from um, a very... Uh, um, a remote island um, off the westernmost tip of Japan um, called Yonogunijima. And um, I'd, I'd been diving for a, a couple of weeks, um, uh, trying to um, work out why on earth I had gone there, uh, and, and uh, which is sort of often my um, my way of working. Um, so I, I was, my work is generally, I guess, um, you know, thinking through the sort of the, the, the mutability of things and places and impermanence and, and the material of materiality, I guess, of photography, broadly speaking. So when I um, I was finishing up my PhD, I remember, and I was uh, I saw this documentary on this particular formation under the sea, and I knew I sort of had to go there. So January, you know, 2018, I, you know, embarked on this kind of trip and did some diving. And um, as it all sort of unfolded, I realised that as much as I was interested in the subject of this um, site, uh, it was also a very um, uh, physically difficult, uh, sort of treacherous um, conditions of, of diving this uh, this underwater monument for the for the term that it's referred to. It's called the Yonaguni Monument, and uh, it's it's um, a formation that rests between 5 and 25 metres under the sea on the cusp of the East China Sea and the Pacific Ocean, about 100 kilometres from Taiwan. And it's 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 sort of contested off from the research that I've done for some time now around it. Um, it's been contested by archaeologists and um, and scientists about, you know, the, the nature of the, the, the site, about whether it's real, about well, as in whether it's man-made, whether it's been naturally formed. So all these sort of uncertainties um, were just really quite um, important. But anyway, so the work has come out of that. Uh, I could probably talk for an hour about um, the experience, but... But I guess the most um, interesting part of um, the work, which is a, it's an installation-based work that that sort of um, draws on on photographs in, in um, that that have been taken under the water and above above ground. Um, but it, it sort of um, tries to sort of highlight, I guess, the the space um, of uncertainty of um, of uh, sort of that anxious space of being under the water and feeling quite um, claustrophobic, feeling the sort of the weight of the sea, of the sort of movement of the water um, and of the lack of light, like progressively as you dive, of course, we lose light. So all of those things of um, luminosity and, and um, distance and, and, and the object itself and all those variables um, are kind of photographic um, associations with photography as well, which is quite um which is what I enjoy about it. Uh, so it's it's sort of it's it's manifesting in a a wall work um, that um, that I guess explores sort of the temporality of um, of that site, but also various precarious <laughs> um, notions of that experience. Um, yeah. Does the work have a name? It's called Apparent Distance. I love it. <laughs> 
and Isabel, mm-hmm. how has the curational, curatorial kind of project been for you working with the National this year and all the many beautiful artists that are involved? <laughs> um, it's been amazing. And um, I should just say off the bat that Isabella's work is beautiful and, and is incredibly captivating. So oh, it's, it's um, I just want to, you know, <laughs> yeah, endorse that, that on, on air. Um, um, it's been amazing. You know, the National as a project... Um, is you know presents a very rare and incredible opportunity for a curator because essentially it's a blank slate on which to be able to have conversations with artists that are slow and gestational and to be present and mm. you know as work is shaping because so the project itself is is part of an initiative a collaborative initiative between Art Gallery New South Wales the MCA and Carriage Works and it was started in 2017 um, and as a suite of three exhibitions that will take place on on every second year, so we're the we're the second iteration of the project, um, and there are three presentations or exhibitions staged at each venue with different curators every time. Um, but beyond that kind of format information, there's there's really no kind of fixed rules about how to approach it, which has been incredibly daunting at the beginning, but but also really wonderful and exciting. So this year I've been working with my co-curators, or as I've been calling them, my kind of co-conspirators. Um, from the MCA we have Clotilde Bullen and Anna Davis, and from CarriageWorks we have Daniel Mooney Cunningham, and I think that they're all going to be coming on in subsequent weeks to talk to you here. They are. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's wonderful. You know, the, the four of us have very different research backgrounds, very different specialisations, have very different sensibilities as curators, and that's something that we all wanted to embrace and lean into and not redact or attempt to kind of neuter uh, in approaching this show and we wanted to to be able to um, present exhibitions that were playful and nuanced and that um, because you know if the national is being pitched as a survey of Australian art it isn't it can never be comprehensive you know there are so many artists that won't be included in the exhibition that are still making vital and imperative work in Australia so these are really you know they're snapshots of of what's going on um which which bear the kind of markings of the particular predilections of each curator um and so you know the the process at the beginning was really just about like research and conversations with artists all of us um I mean I traveled I did so many studio visits all across Australia which was really really amazing to just be able to go and talk to an artist Mm. in their studio with no objective no preconceived ideas and just be like what are you working on Mm. you know (laughs) what what is not even that just like what's interesting to you and then to see to see you know what where the the latent thoughts were in their practice because when you embark on a commissioning project because most of the works in the show are are new commissioned works that have been made for the purpose of this exhibition which is really exciting and really rare Mm. um and and important for institutions to support living artists in this way um when you're commissioning a work with an artist you're not necessarily it's not window shopping you know you're not going in and and picking an existing work and being like yeah i'm just going to chuck that in the gallery you're 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 learning how an artist thinks because that you know that's what carries the project through to the end is is how they approach their work how they think through materials how they think through play um and so really at the beginning it was just about feeling it out and and the show shapes itself through those conversations and through a kind of intuitive approach to you know how to make a comment on what artists are grappling with at the moment and and the kind of narrative of the show that the show at the Art Gallery of New South Wales does have 
a very assertive kind of narrative position that it takes. Um, and there are very um, clear and direct links that are drawn out between different artists' work. So, you know, particular motifs or materials reappear, reappear throughout the show and, and allow you to kind of notice how things are relating to one another. So just when Isabella was, was talking so beautifully about how her work um, articulates and, 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 and looks at the sensation of uncertainty, a lot of the works in the show do that. That's a core kind of principle of, of the thematic orientation of the show at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. But also more specifically the way that she that, that work looks at um, depth in in water and, and how the blue of the sea bleeds out into darkness as as a way of talking about uncertainty as a kind of allegory for uncertainty also reappears in a kind of inverse way in the work of Mira Gojak, who's a sculptor from Melbourne, whose project um, you know the uh, Isabella's and Mira's are kind of on on opposite ends of the exhibition's pathway. Um, but Mira's work is all about um, the sky and, you know, the, there are these beautiful linear steel structures that have swathes of blue yarn wrapped around them. They kind of become these odd personalities almost in the space. Um, but the length of yarn that's been wrapped around these structures corresponds to a sequence of looped distances between the ground and the stratosphere and the sky, So, which is the point at which the blue bleeds mm. out. So at one end of the exhibition we have blue disappearing into the depths of the ocean and in the other we have blue disappearing into outer space so they kind of hold mm. they're these like two points in the show that hold the rest of the mm. the work that is that is speaking to states of sensation states of of kind of responses to the world around them whether that's through political narratives personal narratives or, or through kind of uh, an investigation of kind of poetic form um but there are these little mm. moments where works that may seem completely different may seem kind of diametrically opposed speak to one another and that's kind of knitting those things together through the conversations with artists and all the studio visits and, and putting the show together that way that was really you know exciting for me it seems like a very collaborative process that you guys have been kind of working together and working apart and then working together mm. and you've described it so beautifully for our listeners so thank you so much oh, no. um we're unfortunately out of time oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we talk too time. much <laughs> i love it we'll both we'll just have to get you both on the show again <laughs> yeah. very very soon but thank you so much for joining us you thanks both so wonderfully um, that was curator Isabel Parker-Phillip and artist Isabella Pluta from Art Gallery of New South Wales talking about The National, which opens on the 29th of March and runs until the 21st of July at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. Yeah. Um, Canvas has, cover has you covered in the lead-up to The National with um, artist and curator interviews from the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Carriageworks and the Museum of Contemporary Arts. Uh, before I wrap up, let's go to Sky Rockets, another track picked by Jan Terry. You're listening to Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5 or VRI Digital Stream. Welcome back. You are just listening to Sky Rockets, a track from Jan Terry's 2013 album called No Rules. We've been hearing a lot of Jan, but alas, all good things come to an end. And to wrap it up, you know, lap it up. This is her last, you know, week with us and we're so sad to lose her. I'm Sabella D'Souza and this is Canvas on FBI Radio 94.5. Canvas was brought to you by a team of artists, David Capra and Sabella D'Souza, myself. Our guest curator is the legendary cult classic Jan Terry. Be sure to listen back to the tracks by going to FBI Radio 
programs and then Canvas to have a look at all the songs we played today, along with the interview that we did with Jan Terry. We'd like to say a huge thank you to our guests today, Gemma Smith, Isabella Pluta, and Isabel Philip Parker, along with all of you who have texted in and listened in today. It's such a pleasure to keep you guys company on a Sunday morning. Closing the show is our final song from music curator Jan Terry with her track Losing You. It's an emotive song because we don't want to lose you, Terry. Um, From all of us at Canvas, it's been so great having you on the show. Tune in next for Weekend Lunch with Martin Reyes. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.